Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the podcast where we piece together what makes a world without violence. While we don't always see it, gender-based violence is all around us. At ANOVA, we believe in a future without violence. But what does a future without violence look like? And how do we get there? This week's episode, the first piece. What is gender-based violence and how can we put an end to it? Today, we're laying the foundation with Dr. Nadine Wathen, Western University professor and Canada Research Chair in mobilizing knowledge on gender-based violence. Frankly, she's a pretty big deal. This episode talks about violence and may be hard for some listeners. Welcome, Nadine. Happy to have you here today. Good morning, Annalise. Really nice to see you. Yeah. So... I'm wondering why this work is important to you. You are, um, by any measure, an expert in the field, um, have been at it quite some time, but I wonder what drives you in this, why it's actually important. That's, that's an excellent question. And I think really what it comes down to is I really do not like bullying behavior. And um, a lot of what we see in the, in the field of gender-based violence is really about the assertion of power. Um, and, and that's the foundation of bullying. So bullying and unfairness to me really, really, really bother me. And I think that I do this work to try to address some of those things and, and help people think about how to use power differently, um, maybe power with instead of power over. So those are some of the things I think about that, that drive me in the work. I think there's parts that we're going to tease out from that answer later around power and sort of bullying and those approaches, but maybe we can take a huge step back and lay the groundwork for a few minutes. Um, What is gender-based violence? What are we actually talking about when we throw around that language? Yeah. And of course I knew you were going to ask me that question and there is a simple answer and then there's a more complicated answer. So, you know, the simple answer is it is violence that is perpetrated and or experienced because of somebody's gender. Um, and usually it's, it's um, defined from the, the victim's perspective or the survivor's perspective that because of your gender, you are more likely to be on the receiving end of violence. Um, but I think it is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, when we think about you know, our broader society, and I do like to frame things uh, a little bit more broadly and get away just from the interpersonal level mm-hmm. of things. Um, but you know, we're as a society, we're steeped in violence and we're steeped in inequities between different genders. Um, and it's the intersection of you know the way that we're supposed to be in our gender, the way we live our gender, and the use of violence as a tool for power that end up, I think, um, causing gender-based violence. So that's sort of the site of gender-based violence. So it's not just as simple as you're a woman or you're a trans person or you're queer. It's, you know, it's really about the use of violence to keep people in gender norms in the way that mm-hmm. our society has decided that men and women should be. And you know, we haven't fully, I think, thought through how people who don't identify in those ways should be. And that puts those folks at additional risk. Um, so I, I do think it's it's more complicated than the simple definition, but sometimes you need a simple definition as a starting place. And the simple definition is that you're at higher risk of violence because of your gender. 
It's interesting because when we talk about gender-based violence, we do often frame it as like the individual act against a person. And we get sort of admired in like which acts count as violence and which don't. And we can kind of go down that path for sure. Um, But it can include within sort of an individual's relationship. So that would be more sort of domestic or interpersonal. It can be sexual in nature. But you really brought it up a whole different level when you started to talk, I mean, systemically. But what we mean by that is sort of why that actually happens though. It's not because whoever's doing the violence is just some cuckoo person (laughs) who wants to engage in that, Um, that there's sort of thinkings and reasonings that are at play on a larger scale, both in why we target certain people and then why certain people do that violence. Um, And I know uh, we both sort of are engaged in the area of gender-based violence in different ways. And I, one of the biases that I've sort of seen in the field is there's so much focus on sort of the victim survivor, what to do, how to support them, who they are. And I do want to talk about that, but there's very, there's much less focus on who the person is that's doing the violence and why that's happening. Um, So maybe we can start to tease out some of the who's. Who's yeah, more likely and, to experience it and what that all means. Yeah. And I, I think I just want to one little add on to, um, mm-hmm. to the definitional piece. I think it's also tricky because I'm a researcher. I also try to really think carefully about how you're measuring things, defining things so that you can actually communicate what's going on. And I think, you know, one of the really tricky parts of gender-based violence is it, it really depends. You have to understand what's happened between people to, um, to name it as such. So if I see two men outside of a bar in a fight, I could say, well, that's not gender-based violence because they're both men. But if I then understand that what led to that violence was actually one man not conforming to masculine gender norms and the other man, you know, calling him gay or something else, some, some, you know, nasty name based on the fact that this man was not complying with with what other men think um, men should be then it's gender-based violence right but as an observer i i don't know until i dig into that a little bit more and i think it's the same within relationships quite frankly um we have a lot of bad behavior in relationships of of different kinds you know relationships Mm -hmm. that are same sex that are opposite sex and some of that is just bad relationship behavior the people, and it's not good, like I'm not excusing it, but it's, you know, people are, are in conflict, in stress, and they're doing not nice things. And sometimes that does become violent. And often, if it's in a, a heterosexual relationship, we have, you know, strength and size differentials that can lead to that violence being very impactful in terms of, of the person that's, that has less strength, physical strength. Um, and it's bad for kids to see that, et cetera, et cetera. But that's quite different than, you know, some of the, um, you know, what we call coercive control, those patterns of abusive behavior and threats and fear um, that really is gendered. And so again, even within what you call family violence or domestic violence, where you think it's pretty clear cut that this is all gender-based violence, I'm not so sure. Um, I, I do think we have to more deeply understand. And as a researcher, again, it means we have to develop measures that really get at this and not just quantitative measures, but we have to talk to people to understand what's happening in in those contexts and not doing that, I think over the last few decades, especially in things like national surveys has really led to a belief that there is no, there's not a gender component to these forms of violence, that men and women are experiencing these things equally. And therefore we need equivalent 
or um, you know equal responses, and I think that's highly problematic. But I, I just wanted to sort of put that there because it's it's not as simple as as we think. Nothing nothing ever is. <laughs> My, my mind's just spinning. There's so many good nuggets in there. So intent matters and how intent is connected to, um, sort of like when it, your example of like coercion, like if a man is engaged in sort of really unhealthy sort of patterns with their partner who presumably in this context is a woman that doesn't inherently mean that that's gender-based violence. But when we connect it to if sort of the purpose and the tactics used are to keep her as being kind of confined in a certain role as being either lesser or having less power, like that's where that comes in. Um, that makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. And it really, it, it uh, in some ways depoliticizes it because I do think this space has become highly politicized and sort of this combative nature of, either everything's gender-based violence and like we don't buy into that or um, it doesn't exist at all. And um, it is more complicated than that for sure. Yeah. So who experiences it? What do we know from the stats? Um, okay, so I am going to, because you know my main area of research is violence against women and in particular yeah. intimate partner violence. Um, you know, I'm going to sort of take that lens. So. I would say if you look very structurally, um, we're a society that is steeped in violence. Let's just admit that, okay? Um, our entertainment, our sports, our economic systems, many of our policies are inherently violent. They're winners and losers, and people get hurt if they're not in the sort of winners you know, category of, of who benefits from, from these sorts of, not only policies, but practices, and as we talked about before, norms. So, everybody experiences violence and outside of the home and outside of forms of sexual violence, men are primarily the victims and perpetrators of violence. Okay, so if you're looking at war, community violence, gangs, all those sorts of things, um, men are both the perpetrators and the victims primarily, although of course um, others are, are being victimized in those spaces um, and, and women can use um, violence as well. Within relationships, there it really is, um, you know, men are still the primary perpetrators. And again, because of the nature of the, the dominant form of relationship is a heterosexual relationship, women are usually the victims of the forms of violence that I'm talking about, which really are about, you know, course of control at an extreme end, what we would call intimate terrorism, where you are living in fear every day. And that fear piece is really important. And we've started to look at the experience of fear and the differences men experience fear as well but they might experience the fear of losing their children or mm -hmm. reputational harm um, things like that women are experiencing the fear of being killed or their children being harmed or their pets being harmed or losing their home or losing their financial support so um, and again there's crossover in some relationships men are experiencing those sorts of fear what we're starting to learn as we get better at measuring and understanding is often when men are experiencing that the perpetrator is still a man so it's in a in a, a male male partnership um, and that that is something to look at so why are men so um, enabled and in some cases rewarded for using violence. So if we go back to violence as a tool of power, then it, it starts to make sense. And then if we look at our system responses um, to violence, we know that very rarely do perpetrators get held to full account for their actions. And I, I think of you know the work of Dr. Holly Johnson on sexual violence and how few of those cases 
ever get to court, cases of rape and serious sexual assault ever get any justice, okay? And we know, you know, there are reasons for that. Um, the first level is most women are not believed when they come forward. And if they're believed, they're treated horribly. So again, they're, you know, they're blamed for their own actions. Well, you know, she should have been wearing that skirt or what was she doing at a bar anyway? She shouldn't be walking alone at night. All of the blame put on the victim for her own violent experience. Um, you know, again, that unfairness really makes me very, very angry and frustrated um, because we're not situating the behavior where it belongs and the responsibility where it belongs. So if you know that you're pretty much, you know, going to get away with it, it's sanctioned because you are keeping a woman or a gay man where they're supposed to be, you are correcting their behavior through violence to keep them in those rigid norms, you're not going to be held to account it's you're rewarded essentially for using violent behavior. So until we start to really understand that and, and break those patterns of, of reinforcement, then we're not going to solve the problem. And I do think it starts with men. So who experienced violence? Everyone it, within the context of relationships or sexual violence or workplace harassment or female genital mutilation, women are disproportionately the victims. And certainly um, even in the context of relationships where there is um, bi-directional violence, the impacts and outcomes are more severe for women. And we know that you know, from decades of, of very good Canadian data. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I need to pause this and re-listen to that, but that was really helpful as sort of a scoping um, space. And I, I do think when you started talking about sort of systemic responses and the example of sort of Holly Johnson's work around, you know, if, if a survivor of rape or sexual assault goes through the court system offhand, I quite, can't quite remember it, but it's less than 3% will end up with a conviction. And we always sort of use that in our public education at ANOVA just to talk about where does that attrition happen and what are the biases in each part of that system sort of from policing onwards into sort of the Crown's office and onwards. And then there's been Me Too. And then there's been this narrative added or reinforced, let's say, because it was already present, of men's fear of being falsely accused and sort of how much that plays in. Um, and it was just, it's just interesting. I think you had talked about men do have fear in relationships, but they're different fears. And so I think men have fears in systems and that that's okay. Like, I don't want to negate that false accusations would be incredibly harmful to a man's life, but they are perhaps very, very strongly over-exaggerated and are not actually sort of tangibly uh, rooted to what plays out in the system. Well, so, you know what? Yeah. I, I was just going to say, Annalise, I think, um, yeah any progress in terms of redressing power imbalances, regardless of the groups, but in this case, let's talk about men's power over women um, mm -hmm. and children. Um, any progress we make to redressing those imbalances gets pushed back, okay? And we know certainly that it's almost sometimes one step forward, two steps back. So Me Too surfaced the issue and people started paying attention to it. Just like now we have Black Lives Matter surfacing the issue of systemic racism. And you can see the pushback. So there is a very strong incentive for those with the power to keep the power and the privilege. Um, and they will, they don't play fair, okay? If your primary tactic is violence, 
when you're threatened, you double down on the violence, right? So right. again, I think there's always risk, you know, in making these steps forward, which is why we have to do it as a community and, and be supportive of each other. Um, but certainly you see things like the men's rights advocates and to an extreme extent incels and groups like that, where there is, you know, this sense of entitlement to women's bodies, to women's power, to women's finances, to women, right? The sense mm -hmm. of entitlement. And when that's encroached on, the, the tactics get very nasty. Parental alienation is another one now that has been used in court processes where men are saying, you know, this woman who accuses me of being violent and trying to keep her children, my children away from that is harming my children because I don't have access to them as a father. And it's sort of taken off. I mean, some, some jurisdictions find, you know, oh my goodness, we have to preserve the relationship between this man and his children to the detriment of you know, the children being exposed to violence, the, the mother being exposed to violence. And there are always these conflicts between systems as well. And you certainly see it between the child welfare system and violence against women services, where um, if you interpret a child's exposure to violence in the home as a form of child maltreatment, and we know there are bad outcomes, but if you interpret it as a form of child maltreatment, the mother gets blamed. The mother might lose her children. So she's doubly victimized. So again, these are really complex problem spaces and you can't just have a knee jerk reaction because you might do more harm than good. Yeah. The child welfare sort of tension with the violence against women sector. And then one that's sort of come up recently in my space is dual charging and just the challenge around that. So um, dual charging being that if sort of police officers show up to a home and um, the woman is visibly, let's say, sort of has been beat up and that's really clear. And so a charge is laid, but then he also says, well, she hit me. And so another charge gets laid because they have to do this. Um, then it becomes a, he said, she said, she is also now criminalized and penalized in this where really clearly that was often a form of self-defense and sort of the instigating factor was very much on him, but yeah, these systems yeah. are challenging and like teasing out, um, what's actually happening versus sort of surface level for sure. You did mention incels and that's, uh, I, I just wonder if we could define what that is and maybe just take a minute on yeah. it. Okay. And it's not my area of expertise, but I have done a little bit of, of sort of background reading in this because I think it's, it's quite a fascinating um, phenomenon. So incel is short for involuntary celibate. And basically it's one of these very, um, you know, deep, deep web or dark web communities that has evolved using the internet um, and in spaces that are not um, well moderated to um, you know, it's mostly young men who believe that they are being denied access to women and they feel very aggrieved um, by this to the point where they will, um, you know, participate in very violent acts. So there was, and I don't like using the names of these perpetrators, but uh, the first was a young man in California who killed a number of women. Uh, but we had it in Toronto with the van attack in Toronto. That man had identified himself as an incel. And, and basically he was lashing out against the fact that, you know, he was not able to have sex with women. Um, and it was women's fault that he was not able to access their bodies and do what he wanted. So that, that's the incel movement. That is an extreme example of where this can go, but it's not, a, you know, it's not like a binary, it's a continuum. And there is a continuum from, you know, things like domestic violence and lone shooter attacks, right? We see this um, terrorist acts and shooting attacks, especially in the US where they happen a lot more, almost always, 
the shooter um, ends up having been, you know, a perpetrator of domestic violence, violence against women. Um, we saw it in the in the case in Nova Scotia um, earlier in well earlier in the pandemic, I guess in the spring of of 2020. Um, and and the, actually, the woman in that case uh, was the person who probably saved more lives by initially escaping um, the, the violence he was perpetrating on her in that moment and then reporting it, she was later charged as an accomplice because yeah. she had bought cartridge ammunition not knowing what he was going to use the ammunition for. So again, there's always risk to women when they come forward um, because they might be treated very badly by systems, especially the criminal justice system, but they might also be implicated in their own violence. So when we talk about that you know, retaliation, self-defense, Often, even in cases of, of um, intimate homicide, um, when it's a woman perpetrating it, if you dig back, it's because she's been the victim of intimate terrorism for so long that you know something has finally happened, either a threat to her children or her own life, that she says, "I can't, I can't take this anymore." Um, yeah. And you know, there's again a lot of data on that work by Myrna Dawson and Peter Jaffe on um, domestic femicide. Goodness, this is heavy as it should be, but yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if we can sort of switch. So we've, we've sort of scoped out what's gender-based violence. Um, lots of different threads are connected, but I wonder um, what do we know in terms of how do we address and redress it? What, what are some of the needs that we have to address? Well, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of my work in the space of uh, creating better responses to prevent um, additional violence. Um, among primarily women who have experienced this. But I think we have to start upstream with primary prevention. So let's prevent it before it happens. And really that is about shifting our belief systems, um, being more expansive and flexible in our gender norm beliefs, um, you know, really working, I think, with young boys and men to give them different ways to be and different ways to let each other be. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I worry a lot. I, you know, when people say, well, you're a feminist, you must hate men. Absolutely not. I have wonderful men in my life. And actually growing up, I hung out with boys because I really, I like boys. I mean, you know, there's, and, and in many ways for me, it was, it was easier. So I think we need to give men ways to be that are healthy in terms of their own emotional um, expression and growth and their connection with their own emotions. So that if you cry because you're sad, you're not a sissy or a fag or whatever it is that other boys and men will call you. Um, you're a man who's in touch with his feelings and that's okay. So I, I think it's horrible that we put men in these, what, I, what we call the man box. And if you step out of the man box, you are sanctioned so brutally, right? Through, through violence, uh, physical aggression, violence, um, ostracism, like you, you, know, you don't fit. Um, that, that to me, if that's what you learn as a young boy, as, as a teenager, as a young man, then all you know is anger and rage because that's the only thing that you're allowed to feel, right? Yeah. Maybe you have those moments, those bro moments in the locker room where you slap each other on the back after you've won a game. And I know I'm, I'm sort of being, I'm stereotyping here, but, um, you know, we, we need to give men more and more permission um, to be themselves and, and accept the range of masculine behavior. So I think that's a, a, a really important place to start. I'm actually very optimistic about work that's being done in low and middle income countries, especially in Africa, which are community-based interventions to shift those gender norms and to get men on side. So when men understand that, you know, in an equal relationship, 
you have a partner who is able to contribute to the family, um, it's a win-win. So you don't want to stop women from having economic prosperity because women's prosperity is a family's prosperity. And, you know, for most men, if, if you can support that, and again, if you remove those sanctions against that, then they see it, right? And you can actually grow a more cohesive community. Um, I think there, there is an intersection between the norms and, and bad individual psychology, let's say. So not everyone will be able to, to align with that. And, you know, we have women, again, as I said, who also um, can be very violent in different ways. It might not be physical violence, but emotional violence, coercion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it, it really is um, giving people permission and scope to be who they are and to support that and not, and not sanction it. Um, so primary prevention. And then once, once violence is happening, it really is finding ways to keep people safe. Our systems are not always structured that way. One thing that we're working on a lot is the intersection of violence um, and other forms of trauma across the lifespan. So, and then those experiences of trauma might lead to behaviors that, you know, we would find um, difficult. So if you have had a lot of trauma, and we do know that if you've experienced abuse as a child, you're more likely to perpetrate and be victimized by abuse as an adult. So right. abuse is a threat in your life. There's a lot of pain with that. You know, um, child maltreatment is horrific. It breaks the bonds of trust. It breaks those attachments. Really difficult to trust and be uh, a healthy, you know, be in healthy relationships when you've never had those modeled for you. So you might use substances, for example, you might use alcohol, you might use drugs to numb the pain, the physical and emotional pain. So if we reframe the substance use as a really rational response to pain, maybe we can get out of these, you know, um, the, these ways of thinking that criminalize, um, you know, use of substances and then end up with other pandemics, as if you will, like opioid overdose and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, but if you have a service that says, well, we're not going to help women if they're in an acute mental health crisis and or actively using substances, then you know, you've got a woman who's had a lot of violence and trauma in her life, including some you know, probably current violence that is putting her at risk, but she's blocked from systems because as a result of that violence, she's doing things that we as society or systems say, that's not cool. So we can't help yeah. you. Right? So, so you're that- referencing just so folks can know if they haven't been exposed to some of our systems um, that at least traditionally, especially shelters that were designed for women had policies in place that you had to have sort of good behavior. And what good behavior was, was things like not using substances, um, curfews. So not being engaged in sort of sex work in that capacity and not having any crisis-based mental health, because that would affect the whole house, quote unquote. And that really, that good behavior mentality sort of denied any amount of empathy and actually true understanding around how those are all coping strategies for the actual issue the shelter is trying to address. Absolutely. And I think that then if you layer in uh, things like race and racism, you, you know, some women are going to be disproportionately exposed to these forms of trauma, as well as historical forms of trauma, like colonialism, like anti-Black racism. So if you are operating under all of these layers of trauma and discrimination and systemic violence, then you are more likely to be, you know, you know more likely to have barriers to, to care of various kinds uh, and to be treated very poorly by systems. And then what do you do? I, again, it's rational to say, boy, the last time I was at an emergency department or a women's shelter, or, you know, um, I reported to police, 
I was treated terribly. It just made everything worse. And it put my kids at risk of being taken by child welfare. So what do you do? What's the rational response in that case? So I think we need to have empathy around a women's agency to um, understand what is happening to them and when it's safe to take steps. One thing we know very well from the, uh, from the femicide data is that when a woman decides to leave uh, an abusive relationship, that is the time of highest risk. So when she is actively taking steps to leave, then you know, she is more likely to be killed essentially or, or, or have extremely bad, um, bad outcomes for her and the children. So we have to trust her in terms of putting together a safety plan and a strategy, it takes women many attempts to eventually leave a relationship. And not all women want to leave the relationship. Many just want the violence to end. Okay, mm -hmm. so if he would just change, we could be a happy family. If, 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 right? And it takes a while to get through that because you, you love the person and you mm -hmm. want them to change. So you'll give them every chance. Um, so again, these are, what I would call wicked problems. You see that we have different understandings of the nature of the problem. The problem changes depending on which lens you're looking through. Uh, it is compounded with other problems um, like ongoing trauma, substance use, mental health issues. We know that women who have experienced intimate partner violence, for example, are much more likely to um, experience depression, post-traumatic stress, brain injury, which, you know, mm -hmm. obviously uh, impacts your ability to um, even seek service. So if you're uh, a person of color and are coming to a shelter and you've had a lot of brain trauma, you might be slurring your words because you've had a lot of trauma to your head. But if you're Indigenous, the, you know, the people serving you might assume that you've been drinking because that is a racist right. trope that we have in our society. So, um, you know, it really does come back to empathy and trying not to just blast those judgments out, even in your own mind in that first moment and say, mm -hmm. how can I create a safe space, physically, emotionally, culturally safe space for this person to start on the path um, to being well. And, and that's, you know, systems aren't necessarily structured to do that. And that's, I think, part, part of the problem. Um, and, you know, it is not necessarily bad people trying to do their jobs. It's systems that are, are antithetical to being empathetic. So if you've got six minutes to see a patient or client in a healthcare setting, that's a lot of work to do in six minutes. So instead you put a sign up in your waiting room that says one problem per visit, mm -hmm. right? So then as the person coming, you're like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to talk about what's going on at home. I just want a prescription for the headaches that I'm having because of the head trauma that I've experienced. Right. I think um, if folks aren't part of these systems, hopefully this is giving some insight into some of what the sort of work has been within the systems to better sort of be trauma-informed, which is understand the behaviors in front of them and how they're connected to trauma. And I think though, if you're not part of those systems, there's also links you can make to your own self. Like we're talking about, I think it's really common, dare I say natural in some ways to make really quick judgments of people. And I know like even myself having been in sort of this space for a decade or so. When I hear a story of someone relatively sort of connected to me or famous, and they are, some story came out of how they've been engaged in some sort of violent act or some abuse of a system, there's still a nugget in me that's like, well, wait a second, they're a good human. Yeah. What? 
And just really having to work with, where does that come from, Annalise? Like, why are you still stuck in that? And so you can imagine folks that work in these systems, like they're also human. They have all of those narratives in their minds that they're also working against. Um, And I think that's part of the struggle in addressing gender-based violence is on a very individual and on a very system level, um, getting at all of the narratives that kind of get in way of empathy. Yeah, and it it can't just be punitive, you know? Um, because punishments don't always work. And they're so um, unevenly applied in our society, as we talked about before, that you know, very few perpetrators get held to account uh, mm-hmm. in any meaningful way. So we also have to work on those more positive things, you know, ways to reframe issues, to find those win-wins, right? That if I change my behavior, if I change my way of thinking, that benefits me as well as my partner, as well as my family, as well as my community, as well as my society, and sort of think um, ecologically when you're planning these types of interventions. But as an individual, if you can think, well, you know, there's something in it for me and I'm I'm going to change because it benefits me, I'm fine with that. It doesn't all have to be altruistic. I'm really, I'm fine with anything that ends up with less violence um, and more happiness. I know that sounds trite, but you know, that's, that's kind of what we're going for. Just peace, peace. Yeah. 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 I want to give, a few minutes of time for you to just go full academic and tell us sort of what you're studying, uh, what you're really into right now. Um, so take the floor, just okay. go full academic on us. Okay. Well, I'll try not to be too jargony or geeky, but you know, one, <laughs> one of the things, and we, we've touched a little bit about system responses and I've worked for a long time with the violence against women's sector and in particular, um, you know, services that provide shelter for women when they are um, trying to find a pathway out of an abusive relationship. And it, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what these organizations do um, and, and work that we did over a decade ago. Uh, you know, the, the sort of culmination of our research was a tagline that said, you know, shelters are more than just a bed. Because I think a lot of women think, oh boy, if I go there, I'm going to be in a cot in like a gym next to a whole bunch of other women. So there's, there's sort of a misunderstanding of what, what these services do. Really what they do is they provide immediate safety, but they also link women and and their children to other services. So they help navigate these complex systems, right? If if you think about it, if you're leaving your home, and I I think we need to also rethink who has to leave the home when there's Mm -hmm. violence. Why is it the, you know, the person who's the victim of the violence that is leaving the home with the children, not the perpetrator. So we'll park that for a minute. Um, But all the systems you have to interface with, first of all, you might have to change the kid's school. So you have to interface with the education system. You might have to have protection at work or alter your work schedule because that's someplace that you know you can be found easily even if you've left home and are in a safe location. And we, we've done a lot of work on, on the impact of domestic violence at work. Um, and that's a really important piece because that's a place where, where you can sort of have um, maybe successful intervention. Um, you have to interact with family law, criminal law. If you're new to Canada, you might have to interface with settlement services or the immigration system. So that system navigation piece is extraordinarily important. So shelters, I'm gonna use shelters as a shorthand, do a huge amount of work um, to support women and children when they're in at that phase of, of leaving violence. Um, but they themselves are vulnerable organizations. So again, I I like to to try to look at the systems and structures and see how we can shift those a little bit to better um, end violence or at least end um, the recurrence of violence or the impacts of violence. And 
when the pandemic hit, so, you know, right away last March, I think a lot of people who've worked in this space said, this is not going to be good. We're, we're putting, you know, women in lockdown, women who are experiencing violence at home, it's going to get worse. Okay. And there might be some new violence too. It might be of the kind that I talked about before where, you know, you've got additional stressors, financial stress, people, you know, in their, in, in the same space all the time, the kids home noise, just no respite from that. So there could be that bi-directional violence, what, what um, Michael Johnson would call common couple or situational violence. And that's not good, especially if it, if it escalates, but where there's pre-existing violence of that sort of coercive control type, that's going to get a lot worse. And everybody knew this. So when the pandemic hit, I, I called um, Jesse Roger, the executive director of Denova, and I said, I think we, we need to really look at the research. Like we need to do some research to look at this. And you and I had a couple of conversations as well, Annalise, really early on. Um, how are we going to see what unfolds to learn for the future? Because the first thing that struck me, certainly, in, in talking to Jesse was, you know, it took almost a month to convince the provincial government that shelters were essential services. Mm-hmm. Let's just stop for a minute there, okay? Grocery stores are essential. You know, Shoppers Drug Mart is essential, et cetera. Obviously, healthcare is essential, but these services save women's lives and the lives of children. How is that not essential? And why did it take almost a month to even for, for that to dawn on, on people? Okay, so that, mm-hmm. that to me is a signal of a vulnerable organization. It is not even seen in the ecosystem of you know, essential, whatever that means, okay? So an organization is also vulnerable when its funding is uncertain, okay? And, you know, many community-based organizations will live on a year-to-year budget. Um, Shelters are particularly vulnerable because a lot of their operating costs come from donations. So that's another thing. As soon as the pandemic hit, a lot of people were financially stressed because, you know, they were losing their jobs or being laid off. So donations... Um, started to dry up. I think there was a rebound, certainly in our community, because we have a a really supportive community here. There was a bit of a rebound, but that initial uncertainty around budget and just being able to pay your staff and pay the bills. And then of course, all of the chaos of of the the new ways that we had to work, Um, social distancing. What does that mean in a shelter? When you're crammed to the gills. So because shelters are vulnerable organizations and they never have enough funding, and there's way more women who need the service than there are spaces, you know, just like long-term care, just like other congregate settings, the, the model is cram everybody in like sardines. Well, right. so juxtapose that against public health guidance that says everybody's got to be six feet apart and you can't share bathrooms if you're from a different family. Mm-hmm. Boom, right? Bit so, of a challenge. Bit of a challenge. So we've, we've spent, you know, the last almost year now really studying this uh, by talking to women who are using the service, by talking to a lot of staff across different um, organizations in the province from the north to the south, um, you know, a, a little bit in bigger cities, smaller places. And we surveyed people um, using outreach services. So those might, who might be using the sexual assault services, for example, um, and as well as outreach domestic violence services. We talked to executive directors of these organizations. What is it like to make decisions in real time to try to lead mm-hmm. through this chaos? You're getting weird conflicting guidelines. We're all getting conflicting guidelines, right? In our daily lives about COVID and what we should do and not do and when do we open and not open. Um, But, you know, imagine being funded by a couple of different ministries and they're sending you slightly different um, guidance and regulations and public health is saying something else. So just, wow, like what a chaotic space for 
um, and already vulnerable in the sense of your funding and so on as is not, um, you know, it's very rigid and not flexible and not mm -hmm. predictable. But on the other hand, these are incredibly strong organizations. Um, executive directors of shelters are amazing women um, and staff are amazing. Like, so you've got this reservoir of creativity and, you know, for lack of a better term, resilience, resilience in a good way, like a community that comes together um, to yeah. get the work done. Um, so what we're learning some really, really interesting things through this that we are trying to sort of plan ahead to feed into back to the system and, and the sector and their funders. So next time, and there will be a next time, whether it's a pandemic or some other sort of crisis, an environmental crisis, we're better prepared. And mm -hmm. it, women aren't at home suffering um, because certainly one thing we saw was with the lockdowns, um, even initially when the number of calls went down, the calls that came in, the severity of the violence was yeah. turning people's hair white. And these are people who have had a lot of experience in the field. So when a shelter director says it is bad, then you know it's bad. Yeah. So that's kind of some of the current research um, that we're really deeply engaged in right now to, to help the, the, the sector. Well, and having some connection to it, more sort of at a distance, um, I think it's not only important for sort of what, what happens next time, but also it's allowing us to really have some concrete data and be much more sort of reflective of like the failures of how the system is set up. Like COVID and your research has allowed us to kind of really get concrete in that um, and sort of better verbalize that potentially as sort of the advocacy outcome of your research. So uh, I think that's also a huge add-on of what you're doing. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. And, you know, we're very lucky. We, we got initial funding internally from the University of Western Ontario, where I work. And, uh, but now we also have a, a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council to intentionally mobilize the knowledge out mm. to the broader sector, but also the funders and other related sectors. So we have a series of activities and events planned um, and really want to make sure that, that the research does some good in the world. Um, one little example I'll mention, um, thinking about the space implications and what happens in a shelter when all of a sudden you have to go from cram to the gills to, um, you know, keeping people apart, is we did an analysis of the space and the impact of the COVID protocols on space and created a handbook for the sector. So here's what you can do. Here's, here are things to think about. Here's what you can do if you've got no money. So here's some workarounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, immediate things you can do. Here's what you can do if you can renovate more bathrooms. That's a key message. Um, and here's if you're if you're building from scratch, if you have a new build, here are some suggestions. And we actually shared that back with uh, obviously our partners and the Ontario sector, but also with the national organization and all of their their um, you know provincial level uh, delegates to the national organization. So that's that's pretty cool. And people thought mm -hmm. that was going to be extremely useful. Um, and it's there, it's publicly available. All of our work will be publicly available uh, for people to take up and use. I mean, I feel like it should have happened a while ago, but the link between architectural design and sort of service outcomes in our sector, that, that seems obvious, but a really important contribution of what you did for sure. Well, you know, and, and at least it's interesting. If you think back to the history of shelters, um, they were originally, like you said, the house, right? The safe house. Yeah. And it was networks of women in communities, you know, some who had experienced these forms of violence and others who had friends or family who did saying, we just need to set up a safe space. So it often was a house um, and, you know, maybe somebody's house or, the, or they would pool together and buy a house. So yes, it, it, the sort of designing the space for that purpose was not part of the original thinking. And sometimes 
the old ways kind of follow through. Like we never stop mm. to, to check, like, is that really right. And now there's a lot more going on. There's a beautiful new shelter in North York, uh, for example, just outside Toronto, that was intentionally designed with an architect to be trauma and violence informed. Yeah. Well, and that's a beautiful segue to our <laughs> upcoming episodes. Uh, one of which is masculinity. Um, we have some other ones coming up around how to sort of support kids with consent and modeling that. We have one around sexuality and sort of really embracing a, sort of your own needs and your own space in that context um, and so much more. So yeah. folks, if you don't already subscribe to us, make sure you follow Piece by Piece on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts uh, to hear all of what's to come. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Nadine Wadden. This was a wonderful conversation. Great. Thanks for having me, Annalise. It was a real pleasure. Piece by Piece is a production of ANOVA, A Future Without Violence. ANOVA is on social media, and you can learn more about Piece by Piece and ANOVA at www.anovafuture.org. A reminder that if you need to talk, please call our 24-hour crisis and support line at 1-800-265-1576. Our sexual assault counselors are available for virtual appointments, and our shelters are open. We're here for you. A special thank you to Naji Naim Zada for technical production, Emma Richard for visual content creation, and music for this podcast is from the album Sweet and Joyful by Crowander, the track Humming. Music access downloaded and used under Creative Commons license via freemusicarchive.org. See you next time.